Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, and the sermon title, How to Not Ruin Your Faith. This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 14. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of son, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be back with you all today. Sally and I were away last week. It was good to get away, but we missed being here. Talked about you while we were away, prayed uh, for the service. That was good, but it's much better to worship together today with our church family. So thank you for allowing that today. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of 2 Timothy. And our passage today starts by saying, remind them of these things. Remind them of all that Pastor David preached last week. Remind them of Jesus Christ. Remind them of his worth, his word, and his works. Remind them, Paul says, of these things. Now, just a brief aside already. There are a handful of sermons that I have listened to more than once over the years, and Pastor David's from last week is now one of them. I really needed to be reminded of Jesus Christ this past week. I was struggling with some things, and David's message pointed me in the direction that I needed, helped me to connect with Christ. Not only easy to listen to, but it's really, really helpful. So if you haven't listened to it yet, or maybe if you've only listened to it once, let me urge you to take time this week during a walk when you're working out, driving to work, running errands, or, or maybe before you go to bed. You know, instead of binge-watching one more show or playing one more video game, take time and listen again. Have your heart redirected to what your heart is hungering for, what your heart really needs in order to live out your faith in this world. Remind them of these things, Paul says, and then with that in mind, he goes on in the next several verses to say, Because of these things, here are a number of things that you now need to do and some things not to do, things that will deal with what you say, with what you talk about. And also, here are a number of ways that the impact of what you say has on someone else. It's either going to move them in a more godly direction or it's going to move them in a less godly direction. And I read through these verses, and I think about it this week, and I think the deck is stacked against us this morning in several ways that are going to make it hard to take Paul as seriously as he thinks we need to. And so I want to take roughly the first half of our time this morning to try to unstack the deck, to try to show why we need what this passage says. 
and then we'll consider what it does say for the remaining half of our time. So pretty long introduction this morning. The deck is stacked against us hearing this well for at least three reasons. First, it's hard to take Paul seriously because we live in a world that doesn't take our speaking, our words, our communication, our speech as seriously as God does. We live in a world that doesn't take time to reflect and to ask, is my speech, is the pattern of what I say, is that godly or is that ungodly? Instead, to use Paul Tripp's word in the title of his book, Reactivity, we live in a society right now that values reactivity. You see this really clearly with social media posts or in politics, where what we value is discourse, a way of speaking, that attacks people to destroy them, not to help them. We live in a world of discourse that turns authenticity into a virtue, even if what is being said is authentically evil. It's the kind of discourse that turns self-control into a vice, because self-control seems to put you at a disadvantage when you don't quickly say everything that pops into your head. It's part of the world we live in. And so we could be tempted to come to this passage that talks about the dangers of misspeaking and not take this passage seriously, because it just feels like Paul's making too much about something that to us doesn't seem all that dangerous because we live in that world all the time. It's, we're just used to it. We're surrounded by it. It feels normal to us, not something that we have to pay particularly close attention to. So that's the first way that the deck is stacked against us. The second way is that our culture places little value on truth, on objective reality. And instead, we're used to relativism, to viewing life through a variety of perspectives. And we're used to saying, well, you see it that way, I see it this way, and so those must be equally valid ways of seeing, depending on where you're standing. So you speak your truth, I'll speak mine. And there is something to that. Everyone does see from within their own perspective. And yet God is very clear that if we want to live well with Him in His world, then we have to learn to see from within His perspective that His truth, His way of seeing is the way that things really are, that there is an objective reality that is, let me say it this way, truly true, and that God has worked really hard to make sure that we can know what that perspective is. And that way of thinking for us is hard, even in the church, because we are influenced by living in our relativistic society. And so we can tend to be comfortable with having our own thoughts and ideas that don't exactly line up with Scripture because we're used to having thoughts and ideas that don't exactly line up with the people around us. And so we're going to come to a passage that talks in verse 15 about how you have got to do your best to rightly handle the word of truth. Or verse 18 about how dangerous it is to swerve from the truth. And those just don't feel like essentials to us, like things that are do or die. Instead, what? They, they sound optional. They sound like options. Like, yeah, it, it'd be nice if we got Scripture right, but it's not absolutely essentially necessary. That's the second way the deck is stacked against us this morning. Then third is that the church in the U.S. in general is spiritually sleepy that in part our lives just look like they work whether we hold tightly to what God has said or not. 
they work, whether we speak in line with what he has said or if we don't. And this is especially true in the suburbs, where we have everything we could ever want, whether we listen to God or not. And so we're not really aware of the importance of living a godly life. We're not really aware of how dangerous an ungodly life is. We're not aware because it doesn't seem to make a difference to the kind of car we drive, the clothes we wear, or the places we go to eat. And so because of those three things, I look at this passage, I think about my own heart, I think about our hearts collectively, and I think, God help us. How can we feel this a little bit more like Paul is feeling it? So that we move toward taking him as seriously as he thinks Timothy has to take him. Or maybe say it just a little bit differently. How can we hear the words he uses like ruined lives, irreverent babble, ungodliness, spreading like gangrene? How can we hear that and not just say, Paul's a little over the top here. He's just, he's, he's exaggerating, reaching, because he's trying to make a point. How do we do that? I think that part of the answer is to keep in the back of our minds where Paul actually lands in verse 19. We'll start there. Because there's something there that as we unpack the earlier verses, you're going to realize it's informing the rest of what he says. Now, if you go back to the original Greek text of 2 Timothy, and you compare it with the Greek Old Testament, and here I have taken a different aside. The Old Testament's originally written in Hebrew, but over the centuries, Hebrew sort of got phased out as the primary language of the day. It was replaced by Aramaic, and then it was replaced, or at least supplemented, by Greek. It was especially true after Alexander the Great had conquered and Hellenized a large portion of the world, I'm talking like 300 BCs here. And so the scriptures, because Greek had come in, the scriptures were now translated into Greek, both for Jews who no longer spoke Hebrew fluently, as well as for the rest of the Greek-speaking world. When you look at the Greek text in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, what you find there are exact quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament book of Numbers, specifically chapter 16. You can look this up, chapter 16, verses 5, and then verses 26 and 27. Now, in the New Testament, when one of the authors cites something out of the Old Testament, when they refer to something in the earlier part of the Scripture, they'll often just pull out one or two quotes. But you're supposed to go back to the larger passage in the Old Testament and then see what the whole section, the whole chapter, the whole story, the whole psalm is saying and import that as sort of the background to what you're understanding the author to be saying. So when you do that, when you go back and read Numbers chapter 16, you find that it's an account from a time in Israel's history when they were still in the wilderness. This is after God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, but before they had been brought into the promised land. He'd already given them his law through Moses, and he had already established Aaron and his descendants as the priesthood. Numbers chapter 16, you discover some people didn't like this. They thought that this raised up Moses and Aaron too highly. And so a man named Korah and about 250 community leaders of Israel challenged Moses and Aaron. They said, Numbers 16, verse 3, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. 
Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You've gone too far. All of God's people are holy, and the Lord is among them. What are they arguing? They're saying, Moses, we don't need you to tell us what to do. And we don't need Aaron to stand between us and God. We already have God living among us. And so we can come directly to God without either of you. And they're so persuasive that we're told the nation of Israel backed them. That the community collectively decided to reject God's chosen mediator, Aaron, and to pick their own. To decide on their own what would make God happy and to elevate their own thoughts above what God had said to Moses. And so what happens next in chapter 16 is essentially a test to see if what they said was true or if what Moses had said was true. Because obviously only one of those two could be true. This is not a matter of perspective. So Aaron put incense in his censer to stand before God while Korah and his followers put incense in their censers. And they came and they stood at the tent of meeting. This is where God would meet with Moses. And the glory of God appeared before the whole assembly. Now I have to make sure you have the picture here. People are gathered together over on this side. Glory of God is over here on the other. And in between are a smaller number of people offering incense to God, mediating between God and the people. Aaron with his censer, Korah and his 250 followers with theirs. And the people have literally bet their lives on their belief that Korah and his followers are right, that what they've said is true, that they really are holy enough not only to stand in God's presence themselves, but also to protect anyone else who's standing there as well. And in that moment, God says to Aaron and Moses, move out of the way because I'm going to put an end to all of them. In other words, God told his chosen mediators, stop standing between me and the rest of the people. The people of God are about to get God's full presence unshielded, the full presence of God without the intervening presence of the mediator he chose and whom he had already told them about in the law that he gave to Moses. In short, a very dangerous part time in Israel's history. The people were about to be destroyed because God told their shield to move away. Now, the story doesn't end that darkly because Moses and Aaron continued to mediate for the people anyway, even though the people had rejected them. And God listened to them because he had appointed them for that very purpose. And yet his judgment did break out as well. You get that in Scripture, these little moments where God's judgment breaks into the present world. It's infrequent. But there are a few times where God lets a small bit of the judgment that he is reserving to pour out at the end of time, the judgment that he's holding back now, there are a few times where he lets some of that break into the present moment. And he did that then. Judgment broke out against Korah and his followers and on anyone who allied him or herself with them. Not on everyone else because Moses and Aaron had interceded for them, but God's judgment did break out. Fire came out from him, destroyed the imposter mediators, destroyed Korah and his followers. The ground opened up and swallowed everyone belonging to them. And then unaccountably, even after this, the people still rebel. 
one more time at the end of the chapter, they put themselves in danger again. And this time, God's judgment just breaks out against them. A plague starts killing them off. And Aaron filled his censer and ran. Ran into the middle of the assembly. He willingly put himself between God's judgment and the people and made atonement there for the people. And God's judgment stopped at the place where Aaron was, went no further. It's an account with a really strong warning. God had already designated a lawgiver, Moses, someone who would communicate his perspective, someone who would communicate objective truth. And he had already designated a mediator, Aaron, someone who would stand between his holiness and his people's unholiness. But Korah and his followers said, no, there's wiggle room here. We don't have to follow everything exactly the way that God has said. We can improvise. And they led the people astray, nearly ruined their lives, not just their own. And the scary thing is they used religious-sounding language to push back against God. All of God's people are holy. The Lord is among them. They used religious-sounding language to justify rejecting God's words to justify ungodly actions that ended up ruining and destroying themselves and everything that they loved. So get the picture here. They believed things that weren't true. They acted on those things, and it cost them their lives, their families, their possessions, almost the entire community. And the danger for you and me is to read that account and then look at our lives, our families, our possessions, and not really feel it. To think something like, eh. Okay, so God judged them. That was serious for them. But when you look at my life, it doesn't look like he's judging me, so everything must be okay, right? I can just keep believing and doing whatever I want. And the danger is that we'll miss what God was doing that that judgment in Numbers 16 was a glimpse into what he plans for the future. It's a glimpse into his plans to judge everyone at some point. And what he was showing there is the basis for that future coming judgment. The basis that what we believe about what he has said, what we believe about truth, will determine what we say, and what we say will have an impact on others and on the outcome of their lives. And so Paul is taking that collective background that he references in verse 19, and he says to Timothy in our passage today, essentially, the stakes are really high for how you talk and how you live, even if you don't right now see God's judgment yet. The stakes are really high, and you need to take this really seriously. Because even now, after Christ has risen from the dead, it is still possible, Hymenaeus and Philetus, it is still possible to lead God's people astray. It's possible to downplay truth to such an extent that you invite God's people to ruin their lives and set themselves up for some kind of disaster. And that's not just for leaders, that's for every single one of God's people. What we believe and say has the potential to influence the people who we rub shoulders with away from the Lord. That's the danger that Paul is addressing. And so he lays out two things for us. 
First, he points out several indicators, indications that tell you if you have put yourself into that kind of danger. And then second, he tells you what the antidote is. What is it that you need to steer clear of that danger? So for our remaining time today, just two points, the indicators of danger and the antidote to it. So first, what indicates that you are putting yourself into this Korah kind of danger? Two things, what you say and the impact that that has on others. Let's start with what you say. There are three different ways of talking that Paul says you need to steer clear of. First, verse 14, that you not quarrel about words. Now, quarreling there is the focal problem. See, it's not that you're trying to learn and trying to define words well so that you can learn. You're quarreling. It's that you're using words to keep from learning. It's like when you've asked someone to do something or when you've tried to point something out that you thought the other person needed to see and they end up just blowing you off. And then you end up in an argument and over that. And at some point, they feel like maybe they're losing the argument. They sense that maybe you're probably right. They don't want to admit it. And so they say to you, well, if you had just said that differently, then I'd have done it. Or I'd have agreed with you. You ever have somebody say something like that to you? Parents and kids get caught up in this all the time. Spouses will say this to each other. If you had only said it differently, nicer, better, I'd have done it. I'd have seen it. I'd have heard you. I'd have listened. What is that? That's a debate, a debate about the words that were used, not about the thing itself, not the thing that the words were about. And there's just enough truth in that accusation. I mean, you, you can always say something better. I can. I, I, I can always say something nicer, something clearer. There's just enough truth there that it shifts the focus where it shifts the focus back onto you. You're now the person who's done something wrong because you didn't say it the right way. And what gets lost is what you first asked for or tried to point out. It's a quarrel about the words that were used that ends up obscuring what they were used for in this case, that ends up obscuring what God has said. So that's one way of communicating that tells you you're putting yourself in danger, one indicator. Second indicator involving what you say is verse 16, is irreverent babble. What is that, irreverent babble? It's when you say stuff, lots of stuff, that is not trying to revere God, not trying to honor him, not trying to keep him in view. Instead, it's irreverent, talks about something else, different kind of viewpoint. You're not trying to think like God thinks so that you can say things that might sound like what he would say. In fact, it's just you talking in a way that doesn't take him into account at all. And so you notice here that irreverence is not only when you try to say bad things about God, it's bigger than that. It's when he just doesn't factor in, in any way, into what you're saying. So he's not at the beginning of your conversation shaping what you say. His thoughts don't guide you along the way. And you're not aiming your words toward what he loves in any way. You're just talking as though he didn't exist. You're using the lips and the tongue that he gave you. 
You're using the air that he fills your lungs with to say things that have nothing to do with him. That's irreverent. And it's a second talk indicator that says you're in danger. Third indicator, verse 18, is that you've swerved from the truth. That you've taken a well-known, well-established standard, a well-known doctrine, teaching of Scripture, passage of Scripture, and you've changed it. And so you're now saying something different from what God has said. Because you're taking things that may be true, but you're putting them together in a way that challenges the things that God has said. Anytime you do that, anytime you use the Bible to fight against the Bible, you've swerved from the truth. That's what Korah and his followers did. They said, all God's people are holy. All God's people are set apart from him. That's true. And they said, the Lord now lives among his people. That's also true. And therefore, they said, anyone can approach him on their own terms and their own merits and be acceptable to him. We do not need Aaron to be our priest. And that's not true. They used things that God had said to arrive at a conclusion that contradicted other things God said. They made Scripture, the Word of God, fight against Scripture to arrive at the conclusion they wanted, swerved from the truth. And they discovered there's a huge cost to that. That's what Paul says Hymenaeus and Philetus are doing as well. They've been teaching that the resurrection has already happened. Now, obviously, they're not talking about what happened to Jesus. Obviously, he is already raised. But since they're swerving from the truth, the resurrection that they have in view is the one that all of us are looking forward to, the one that God promises to people who follow Jesus. And they're saying that individual Christians have already been raised. If you follow the logic here, we are united with Christ now, and therefore we are spiritually alive, we are spiritually resurrected, and that because we are resurrected now, they are arguing, all of the future blessings are ours to enjoy right now. Now, clearly it's not what Scripture says, but they've taken a couple of things that are true to arrive at a conclusion that's not. They've swerved from what God has said to his people. They've let themselves believe things that God said differently. That's a third indicator that they're in danger. And so Paul is telling you, pay attention. You have indicators coming out of your mouth. Pay attention to what comes out of your mouth, and it will help you understand whether or not you're heading down Korah's road or not. If you're quarreling, talking irreverently without a Godward reference, if you're making God say contradictory things, it's a pretty good indication that you're moving yourself in a dangerous direction. Second indication is to notice what impact your words have on the people around you. And there are also three of these, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to clump them together. What happens when you are speaking in these dangerous kinds of ways? Verse 14, you ruin those who listen to you. It's not neutral. You ruin them. Verse 16, you lead people into more and more ungodliness. And verse 18, you upset people's faith. When you don't hold tightly to what God has said, then your words, your conversations, lead people away from God rather than toward Him. 
Now, it's true, you can't make people love God. But in your conversation, what can you do? You can make people aware of who God is and aware of how good he is by what you talk about. Or, here, you can tempt people to live as if God does, doesn't exist, as if he, what he says is not necessary to hang on to. When you do that, you lead other people to experience God's judgment in their lives. Ruined lives, ungodliness, a weakened faith, an upset faith. Think, okay, well, that's kind of general. What, what does that look like in our present time when God is still holding back his ultimate and final judgment? What's, what's it look like when God is being patient, not opening the ground up under people when every time his word is rejected? What does it look like when your life is ruined and your faith is upset even when your fridge is full. An upset faith means that you no longer have confidence that God loves you. No longer confident that his delight is to rescue you from your slavery to sin. No longer confident that he adopts you in his family that as his beloved child, that he absolutely loves having you there. And when you don't have confidence in him, you start looking for stability, you start looking for affirmation, not in him, but in something else, in something that's always going to let you down because it's not as strong to build your life on. That's part of what an upset faith looks like. What else does an upset faith mean? It means that you're no longer thinking that sin is your biggest problem in life or that your biggest need is for God's ongoing power to help you fight against it. That means then that you're not going to him looking for his power to overcome your temptations. You're not asking him to give you a desire to live a godly life. Instead, you start to feel enslaved all over again, or you harden your conscience against what his spirit is trying to show you, times where you've swerved from him, times when you've sinned. You harden your conscience, which leads you even farther from him. And it means then that you start to lose a sense of what you should live for. Either you have no idea and so you just feel adrift in life, life, like you're just putting your time in, or you set goals that are not aligned with God's goals. You're trying to be fully satisfied by some part of your life here, you know, the, the easy ones, money, sex, power, something other than Him. When your faith is upset, God is no longer your focus. He is no longer your greatest joy. And so you get used to living without him. And because he's not an active part of your daily life, he feels distant. He's not someone who is your friend, someone who loves you more than he loved his own life. Which means what? Then you end up with a ruined life. You don't have meaning and purpose here, meaning and purpose that suffering can't take away. You're not energized to use your gifts and talents for stuff that's going to last forever. You're not trying to see Christ's kingdom build up on earth. You make little positive impact on others. Can't draw anyone to a God that you yourself are not passionately connecting with. And in the end, you end up with a wasted life, a ruined life. One where there's nothing to show for it. There's a horrible passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking there about our lives as Christians, and he uses the metaphor of us as builders. 
And he says, we can either build with materials in our lives that are enduring, or we can build with those that don't last. We have a choice here. And he reminds us one day that the Lord will test the quality of what we have built with fire. What is that? That's a reference to God's judgment, not a you-destroying judgment, but an evaluative, an assessing kind of judgment. A judgment that for the believer doesn't determine whether you're saved or not, but it does determine the value of what you've done with your life. And Paul says, verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, if it survives the fire of God's evaluation, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. There is something in it for living a godly life. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You hear the warning there. It is possible for real Christians to build their lives on things other than Christ. It is possible that you can have your faith upset and still be saved, but the warning is that what you have built, all of the stuff with your life, all of that will just be burned up when God judges. And in the end, you'll have as much to show for your life as Korah and his followers did. Your life will be just as much ruined as theirs, even if you don't see it right now. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, that is not what I want for you. <laughs> I don't want that for anyone in the church that you come in contact with. So Timothy, take me seriously. Think carefully about what you're saying. Think about the impact, the kind of impact that you're having on the people around you. It's a challenge to Timothy. It's a challenge to me. It's a challenge to you. It's a challenge to ask ourselves questions, to do some self-reflection, to ask, do I swerve? Do I downplay doctrines, teachings, passages of Scripture that I don't really like? Do I cherry-pick things from Scripture that just let me ignore other parts of what God thinks? Do I swerve? Or you ask, do I talk in ways that aim to have some connection to God and to what he thinks? Are the things that I talk about the things that God would talk about? Would I talk about the things that I say if I were in heaven, in front of him? And if I would not, why would I do that here? Would God enjoy the jokes that I tell? Would he enjoy the things that I say to my friends? Would he enjoy the way that I say them? Or ask a different question. What impact am I having on the people around me? Do the majority of my conversations end up in quarreling and arguments? Do the majority of my conversations just drive people away from me? Or do they end up helping people? Do they end up in productive conversations that are good for the people that I talk with? Do my conversations help people live more godly lives? Or do I encourage them in some way toward ungodliness? Do people expect me to try to bring God's perspective into our conversation? <laughs> or would that just feel totally alien and, and out of character if I did? Do people come to me because they want to hear God's perspective? Or do they come to me because they know I won't offer it? And they're more comfortable with that.
do the people I talk with most, do my friends, do my family end up a little more pointed in God's direction? Or do they slide even further into ungodliness and into spiritual ruin? This is a really heavy passage. It's a passage we have to take seriously. But be careful how you take it. Okay, you may need to repent. I, I have all week long. But Paul's intention here in that repentance is not to crush you and me. It's to help us. He does intend to sober us, but it's so that we take the positive direction even more seriously. So point two, what is the antidote so that we don't go down this road of Korah? It's verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The antidote is to take seriously what God has said, to take seriously the word of truth, to learn it, to know it, to spend time learning how to apply it so that God approves, so that he looks at you and he says, yes, that is exactly what I meant and how I meant it. You got it. In other words, our goal is the same as what drove Ezra the priest. Ezra had lived in exile in Babylon. He lived among people who did not acknowledge God as God. He lived among people who created their own gods, a whole pantheon of gods, with their own values and their own ways of thinking, very pluralistic society. And Ezra rejected the relativism of his culture. And instead we learn in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra devoted himself to knowing what God had said. Devoted himself to doing it so that it shaped his life and to teaching it so that his conversations were informed by the word of God. That's how you escape the danger that Paul sees here in 2 Timothy. The danger that Hymenaeus and Philetus have fallen into. And I love the illustration that he uses here, that they are saying that the human resurrection has already happened. Because as I read that, I'm tempted to think, well, it's not really a major doctrine, is it? I mean, it's not like they're denying the virgin birth of Christ. They're not denying that he atoned for our sins on the cross. They're not denying that he was raised bodily, right? You read that and you think, isn't this kind of like a, you know, a minor divergence? Why can't they have their slight modification and I have mine? It's really helpful that Paul uses this illustration. It reminds us that God, what God has said all hangs together. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So that when you distort one part, even if it seems minor, it impacts the rest. And it ends up doing what? It ends up putting people on a road of ruin. It ends up upsetting their faith. Which is what happened with this kind of thinking that our resurrections already happened in the early church. Early church struggled with this. Think about their cultural location. They were embedded in a world heavily influenced by Greek thought. In Greek thought, the, the best stuff was spirit and physical stuff at best was kind of, it didn't really matter. At worst, it was bad. 
And so if our spirit is already resurrected, then we're enjoying the promised resurrection now. We got it all. Then we can do what? We, we downplay the goodness of the physical creation. We don't hang on to God's promise to renew it. We don't long for his justice to restore it. We move our focus off of God onto what? Onto ourselves. Onto our own spiritual experiences. While we really don't care about how we live, because what? That, that's just stuff you do with the body. It's just stuff that doesn't matter. And you see here how one, you can call it minor distortion, moves you away from revering God, moves you away from godliness. It's why we have to do our best to rightly handle the word of truth, to know it, to have it influence how we relate to each other in the community, to have it influence how we talk to each other. Let me close then by playing devil's advocate just one more time this morning. And let me ask the question that bugs me. Is this really enough? In the face of everything that we have to deal with, in light of all that our friends and our children have to deal with as they go off to work, they go to school, is it really enough just to talk to them? Yes, I know, talk in a scripture-influenced way, but is that really going to be enough to impact them? Will it be enough to help them turn their back on all of the things that they see every day that look so good to them? Will it be enough to lead them to godliness, to good decisions, to stronger faith? Or is it just going to be a couple good sentences that get lost in a sea of advertising or overwhelmed by a platoon of influencers who are all offering a different way to think? You hear my dilemma? This looks so weak. It looks so uncertain. That makes me ask, is this really solid enough to, to trust, to throw ourselves into? Now, those are important questions for anyone. I think especially they're important for those of us who live in the Philadelphia suburbs. Because we are people who are reasonably successful in life. We know how to be reasonably successful. What's that mean? It means that we are used to having a clear goal, some kind of clear objective, and we're used to a clear methodology for getting there, and we're used to having clear ways of measuring progress to see if we're putting in enough effort or if we need to double down and do a little bit more in order to get the result that we want. And what Paul is laying out just does not seem to fit into that world, does not seem to give that same kind of clarity, does not give that same certainty. It just doesn't feel powerful enough. And if any of those kind of thoughts flit through your mind, I think you're in good company. Because down throughout the ages, the church has felt that way too. What does the medieval inquisition tell you when the church allied herself with force and violence? Or what does it tell you that the church partnered with the state for centuries in Europe to wield power over people, or the way that the church keeps trying to do that in the U.S. What's it tell you? It tells you that God's people struggle to believe, that simply holding to the truth of what God has said and speaking in line with that truth is enough. 
It tells you the church has tried a lot of different alternatives, tried to rely on a lot of other things in order to force people to be more godly. Those alternatives have always failed miserably. So what is it then that gives Paul hope that this is going to be enough? And let's face it, he is playing here about as weak a hand as you possibly can. He's chained up in prison, soon to be executed, while guys like Hymenaeus and Philetus are running around free, successfully undermining other people's faith. What gives Paul confidence that what he's insisting on is going to be up for that challenge? It's verse 19. God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What is it that Paul turns to to anchor his confidence? It's not himself. He doesn't turn to his ability to learn scripture, doesn't turn to his ability to speak well, he doesn't turn to his ability to captivate others. Instead, his confidence is in God and God's ability that the Lord knows those who are his, and that those who are his run from iniquity. They run from ungodliness. Paul's confidence is that God has it all under control in his church, even when it looks like the deck is stacked against us, even when we're not sure that we can really speak all that well for God, even when we're not certain if the people we love will listen to us, or with whether they'll listen to the moral chaos that swirls all around them. When we're not certain about ourselves, when we're not certain about others, we can be certain about God. That he has the situation under control. That he knows those who are his and that his people will respond to them. They will depart from iniquity. And we can be certain that if he knows us, we will depart from iniquity. We will depart from swerving. We'll depart from helping others swerve. And we know that we'll be eternally joyful in his presence and that somehow he will make it so that we have no tears, no regrets from obeying him and putting our full trust and confidence in what he tells us to do. And so our hope hangs on the Lord. The Lord knows those who are his. But how, you ask, how does he know? Because he paid for them. See, you have to keep number 16 in mind. That's why Paul quotes from it. Why is it so important that Israel understand in the wilderness who their God-appointed mediator is? It's because that passage is not about a power struggle between two groups of leaders. It is not about Moses and Aaron facing down a rival challenger trying to usurp their power. It is not about a failed leadership coup. That passage is about who will God accept as a mediator between himself and his people. It's about who is able to atone for them. Who can get the job done? And the answer is Aaron, but not Aaron. What Aaron does in standing between God's presence and his people is he stops the judgment of God. But that's all his standing there does. It puts a halt to God's judgment, but it doesn't get rid of God's judgment. Judgment is still there, still threatening the people because the people did what they swerved from the truth. 
When they backed Korah, they rejected God. They chose Korah's word over God's word, and they bet their lives on it and lost. And so that judgment from Numbers 16 is still there. It's just put on hold until Jesus comes. Because Jesus is the true mediator that Aaron points to. He's the one who stands in the full presence of God, not to hold God's judgment back, but to be the focal point of where it all gets poured out, to absorb it. He's the shield between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of his people. He's the shield who stands there without moving, who puts himself in the middle when the fire of God's judgment breaks out against his people and burns up everything that opposes him. Jesus stood there in the blazing fire of God's judgment on the cross for every single time that you and I replaced God's words with our own. He stood there so that instead of God's judgment breaking out against you and me, it broke out against him instead. How does Jesus know who are his own? Because he paid for each one. He knows who he paid for. Because he went to the cross claiming each misspoken word as his own. Because he went to the cross claiming each swerving from the truth as though he had swerved. He claimed each one of each thing that you and I have ever done as his own so that he could bear the penalty for them. And he did that, as he says in John 17, because he guards his own so that not one of them is lost. And because of that, we learn in Revelation 14, 4, that they follow him, his people follow him wherever he goes as he leads them into more and more, more and more godliness. They depart from iniquity because they are loyal to him because he loved them and they know it. They know what it is to be loved and they want nothing to do with anything that he's not part of. Trust that. Trust his work in you Trust his work in those you talk to as you speak in ways that honor him. That's how God promises to shape his people so that their faith is strong and so that they don't ruin their lives or ruin the lives of the people around them. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not have to be coerced, forced into being our mediator. Thank you that Aaron's running is just a tiny little picture of how you ran from heaven to earth in order to put yourself between the judgment of God and everything that we deserved. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us from before time began and that we will not ever be out of your love. Thank you that you will make it your job, continue to make it your job to lead us into godliness, into righteousness. Lord, that you will give us hearts that are attuned to your words, your truth, so that that's really all we want. Thank you, Lord, for doing that work in each one of your people's hearts. Lord, give us gladness, give us soberness as we come to you now. In Jesus' name. <laughs>